Welcome back to the Der Show during uh, another day of uh, terrifying and terrible uh, activities um, in and around uh, Kiev and uh, the rest of <clears throat> Ukraine. Um, uh, just uh, today, uh, Russian rockets hit Babi Yar. I don't know how many of you know what Babi Yar is. Babi Yar is a ravine uh, outside of Kiev. I've been there. Um, it was a place where 30,000 Jews were taken in September of 1941, babies, children, women, the elderly, lined up in front of pits and, and shot. Um, uh, only a handful of people survived to tell the story. They were under other bodies and they managed to live. But it was one of the most horrendous massacres of, uh, of all time. When I went to uh, Babiar some years ago, at a time when I was representing the president of the Ukraine, there was no monument. The, you didn't know. You had to be told, oh, this is the place. It's a park. And there was a little tiny plaque in Yiddish and I think Ukrainian and Russian, and uh, it didn't say very much. It was put up by people from the Jewish community, but the the country of Ukraine didn't recognize uh, Babi Yar. In fact, um, one of the great uh, Russian poets, uh, Yevgeny Yevtushenko, wrote a famous poem about uh, Babi Yar, um, and it begins this way, No monument stands over Babi Yar, a drop sheer as a crude gravestone. I am afraid today. I am as old in years as all the Jewish people. Now I seem to be a Jew. Yevtushenko was not Jewish, but uh, he wrote this poem in Russia, and he was condemned for it by the Russian leaders at the time who were, who were very anti-Semitic. But the Ukrainian leaders were uh, pretty anti-Semitic at the time as well. Look, I, I'm, I'm a big, big fan of President uh, Zelenko, of, of uh, Zelensky, of, um, of Ukraine. I'm a big fan, but he made a mistake today. <clears throat> He ignored history. He talked about the bombing of Babi Yar, as he should have, and he said history is repeating itself. No, 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 no. History is not repeating itself for a lot of reasons. First of all, Mr. President, please remind your people, remind the world, that the massacre at Babi Yar, 33,700 Jews, according to the Nazi statistics themselves, murdered in cold blood, stripped naked, all their possessions taken away, put in front of pits, shot to death by machine guns. Who do you think fired the machine guns? Ukrainians. The Ukrainian auxiliary police were deeply involved in the massacre at Babi Yar. There is Ukrainian blood on their hands, Jewish blood on the hands of Ukrainians. Don't use Babi Yar as a way of making us love the Ukrainian people historically. Uh, Ukrainian people were among the most anti-Semitic in all of Europe, among the most uh, involved as collaborators with Nazis. Yes, they were victims. Sure, they were overrun by the Nazis, but many of them, many of them were willing collaborators. Many of the guards at Auschwitz and Treblinka were volunteer Ukrainians. So please point the finger inward at your own people, at your own history, 
And don't say never again. First of all, there's no comparison as awful, as awful as what's going on today in Ukraine. It doesn't compare to what the Ukrainians were complicit in doing to the Jews and Catholics, by the way. Uh, we'll get to that uh, in a minute. There was a lot of anti-Catholic um, uh, bigotry among Ukrainians, too, from the beginning of Ukrainian nationalism. I'll get to that in just a minute. So when I went to when I went to Babiar, there was no there was no memorial. Uh, now there is one, a small one, um, but there is an enormous memorial, an enormous statue in the middle of, of Kiev, in the middle of Kiev, the most beautiful, the most glorious statue. Here's a picture of it. Um, I, I saw it when I was there. Well, who do you think is riding that horse? It's a man named Khmelnytsky, who was the leader of the um, uh, group uh, of people uh, who murdered, again, between 40 and 100,000 Jews during the Khmelnytsky uh, uprising. The Cossacks came in on their horses. They came to Jewish communities, and they, they bashed the heads in of of Jewish babies. Okay, that was several hundred years ago. Okay, why are we talking about that? Because this statue still is at the center of Kiev. He's a hero. He is on their $5 bill. That's him. That's his picture. Uh, when I represented the president of uh, Ukraine, he promised me he would try to get that picture taken off the $5 bill and try to get the statue removed. No, that that, that didn't happen. Uh, so, you know, we have a very, very mixed picture. In fact, Hitler's idol was Smelnitsky. He quoted him. He talked about him. Uh, Smelnitsky did what Hitler wanted to do. He basically killed all the Jews of Kiev and other places, and they have a, a joint place in hell together, Smelnitsky and Hitler. So please, History and memory have claims. Yeah, we're fighting a war, and during war, the first casualty is truth. We know all of that. We also know that the president of Ukraine uh, has to marshal his troops. He has to have his Churchillian moments. He has to have his Rooseveltian moments. Yes, I, I agree with all that, but you can't do it on the graves of murdered Jewish people. You can't glorify... Ukrainians and, and, and claim that Bobby R was something done by Nazis against Ukrainians. No, it was something done by Ukrainians against other Ukrainians who happened to be uh, Jewish. Melnitsky, by the way, not only murdered Jews, he murdered Catholic priests and, and Catholic uh, citizens. Uh, he was an all-around bigot. Uh, he wanted to have a pure country, uh, a pure country of Cossacks. And, uh, and that's why he's glorified. He's regarded as a great nationalist in, in Ukraine. So I'm not blaming something that happened several hundred years ago. I'm blaming the current Ukrainian people for having a statue of Khmelnytsky up there. And I'm blaming the president of Ukraine for talking about never again and invoking the history and invoking his own Jewishness uh, when he talks about Bobby R. History is complicated. Who do you think rescued 
the city of Kiev from the Nazis, the Red Army, the bad guys, the Russians, the very guys who are now bombing Bobby R were the ones who came in and rescued the remaining few dozen Jews that still lived there and liberated the rest of the Ukrainians from Nazi rule. So it's not black and white. It's not as simple as you'd like to make it. It's very complicated. History is very complicated. It's very rare that history sees things in terms of good guys and bad guys. The Second World War was an example of that. But of course, in the Second World War, we were on the same side as Stalin. And Stalin was murdering people, murdering Jews, murdering dissidents, murdering uh, others. Stalin was not a good guy. Roosevelt and Churchill were, were good guys. Um, De Gaulle, make up your own mind about, about De Gaulle, a very mixed, very mixed picture. And the Nazis, they're easy, they're easy, uh, all bad. Nothing good about, nothing good about that. I think that it's hard to find anything good today about Putin, but he's not a Nazi. He's not a Nazi at the moment, you know, who knows? He may devolve uh, and things may get much worse, but I don't think we're ever gonna see death camps with little babies taken from their mother's arms and put into gas chambers. I don't think we're gonna ever, ever see that. The question is, what if we do? What if it gets worse? Does the United States ultimately put our troops in harm's way? Do we have a no-fly zone? Um, or to take it even a step further, let's assume things get worse in Ukraine and we don't send in troops, we don't do a no-fly zone, we send them ammunition, we send them help, we help them get out, we do all of those things. Lots and lots and lots of people are killed. And Putin says, oh my God, look, they didn't, they didn't fight back. They didn't have a no-fly zone. They didn't send American troops or NATO troops. So I'm going into Estonia. I'm going into Latvia. I'm going into Lithuania. At that point, everything changes. At that point, we have a statute, a statute passed by Congress, by the Senate, confirming by a two-thirds vote a treaty, it's called NATO, North Atlantic Treaty Organization. And under that treaty, we are legally obliged to send our troops, put them in harm's way to help Estonia, to help Latvia, to help Lithuania. And if you think Ukraine was bad during the Second World War, the Lithuanians, the Latvians, the Estonians were just as bad, the Lithuanians probably even worse. The Lithuanians and the Latvians didn't even wait for the Germans to enter their cities. They started killing the Jews in anticipation of them coming. Of course, the Germans then helped them. And their claim is the Germans rescued us from communism. So again, it, it's, not, it's not black and white, but my question to you is this. I have a 26 year old grandson, 28 year old granddaughter. They're both eligible for the draft. Um, you, many of you have grandchildren, children eligible for the draft. And by the way, the draft will no longer distinguish between men and women. So we talk about sending our boys abroad. We're gonna be sending our men and women abroad. Would you want 
your children and grandchildren to fight for Estonia, Lithuania, and Latvia? Uh, would you want American treasure, American blood to be spilt because we have a treaty? You know, no, no decision made involving war and peace is, is made generally on the basis of parchment preachments, paper documents. They're made on the basis of national interest, but we have a treaty and we're obliged. Uh, I don't think anybody would have standing to bring a lawsuit demanding that we follow our treaty obligations. The Latvians would not be able to come into court and say, look, we signed the treaty, send troops. But I suspect we would send troops. I suspect we would send um, airplanes. I suspect we would engage in a war uh, if a NATO country is attacked, which really raises fundamental questions about NATO. NATO started with just Western European countries. The alliance that won the Second World War, Great Britain and France, and, and then of course Germany, got included as a major, major nation. Now it has nothing to do with the North Atlantic. It, it extends to Turkey. Is Turkey really an ally of the United States? How many of us would want to send our children and grandchildren to fight for Turkey? Um, so is NATO a good idea? Uh, is it a good idea for the United States to have obliged ourselves by treaty to begin a war with a nuclear power over the liberty, important as it is, defend liberty, support liberty, but over the liberty of a, a country that many of whom don't share American values, Turkey certainly doesn't share American values, and it's not a democracy. Not all NATO countries are democracy. Turkey is the furthest thing from a democracy. Uh, Erdogan is a, is a dictator, is a tyrant. He, would, he could be Putin. Putin could be him if the circumstances were somewhat different. Um, so, you know, this is a question that right now focuses on Ukraine, which is not a member of uh, NATO, which is not uh, part of the European community, but it wants to be. Um, some people think that's the cause of the, the conflict, that it was Ukraine's desire to become part of NATO and the refusal of NATO countries and the United States to say no. Um, maybe if we had say said no firmly and forever, and said, look, we, we've gone too far. We probably never should have allowed Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania in. We have, you know, they were part of the, they were part of the Soviet Union. Uh, and then other countries like Poland were part of the Warsaw Pact. The Warsaw Pact was the anti-NATO NATO. It was the Russian NATO, the Soviet Union's in those days, uh, NATO. So we had two conflicting treaty organizations, the Warsaw Pact organization, that included all the countries under the sphere of influence of Russia following Yalta, Stalin, and Roosevelt, and the Soviet Union, and the division of, of Europe. Um, and, 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 and then when, when the Warsaw Pact dissolved and the Soviet Union dissolved, uh, NATO quickly gobbled up the rest of these countries, maybe without enough thought. Um, I, I don't think the American people ever made a decision uh, should we oblige ourselves to go to war over Lithuania? I don't remember making that decision. I don't remember people running for Congress pro and con on that issue. 
I don't remember polls being even taken on that issue. We just did it. We did it because we could, because the Soviet Union broke up and because the Warsaw Pact broke up. And so we created this expanded NATO, which is a knife that cuts both ways. It's uh, a buffer against Soviet, former Soviet, now Russian expansion, but it imposes obligations on us that uh, many would not like to see us have to fulfill. And so, you know, the point I'm trying to make here is I am not making a point in favor of Putin or against Ukraine. I am completely in favor of Ukrainian independence. I think uh, that uh, Zaleski is a brave and bold man. He is the closest thing we've come to having a Churchillian voice in, in the post-war uh, era. Uh, he's a hero to me. Um, I think the Ukrainian people are heroes, uh, the ones who are fighting, uh, the ones on that island, the ones who are being bombed uh, in the various cities, in Odessa, in, in Kiev. Uh, they're on the right side, and Putin's on, on, on the wrong side. All I'm saying is that life, history, memory, civilizations are more complex. The world is not divided into the empire of evil, to paraphrase President Reagan, and the empire of good, certainly not historically. Uh, Germany and Japan were evil during the Second World War. Today, polls show they are the two most admired countries in the world. More admired than the United States, more admired than Great Britain, Germany and Japan. How quickly they changed from pariahs that went into accompanying nations, murdered civilians in the Japanese case, raped and degraded uh, people from China and other places, um, killed many, many civilians, and I don't have to tell you about Germany. Now they're the most admired countries in, in, in the world. Um, Russia was a very admired country during the Second World War, I think, as I've said before. Had Germany not made the mistake of invading the Soviet Union, and Japan hadn't made the mistake of attacking Pearl Harbor, the Axis might very well have won the war. They were winning the war at the time. Uh, the war turned um, on those two events. Um, when uh, uh, Germany invaded uh, the Soviet Union and the siege of Stalingrad and you know, all of the history that we're, we're all aware of, it turned the tide. And the Soviet Union then went on the offensive and the Red Army then began to liberate uh, nations that were in the thrall of, of, of Germany. Uh, the same thing happened in the Pacific. Um, once Pearl Harbor occurred and the United States rebuilt its naval forces, losing a lot of battles earlier on and then winning a lot of battles, and then the brilliant, brilliant and costly attack on D-Day in June 6, 1944, where so many young British and American soldiers and Marines died in trying to recapture uh, Europe, but it, it won the war, it won the war, and, it, and it, it saved lives. You know, you talk about the complexities of history. I was a, a close friend of um, Robert Morgenthau, who was the legendary district attorney of Manhattan, and Robert Morgenthau 
said he had the privilege and honor of being the only American soldier who was ever shot down once in the Pacific and once in the Atlantic. He ended up in the water twice, um, once for many, many hours, um, and another time for, 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 for several hours. And um, so we discussed a lot of things. One of the things we discussed was the American decision to bomb Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And, you know, being an old line liberal, I'm very queasy about the use of, of atomic bombs. And, and Bob was clear. It saved his life and it saved the lives of probably tens of thousands, maybe a hundred thousand Americans. Had they invaded the major islands of Japan to win the war, which they would have done, it probably would have ended up killing a hundred thousand American soldiers and probably several hundred thousand Japanese soldiers and, and civilians. Instead, we dropped the bomb. It killed a hundred thousand, mostly civilians. So Bob was very much in favor of the first bomb, the Hiroshima bomb. He had questions, as we all had questions, about whether the second bomb was necessary, the one in, in Nagasaki. But, you know, we don't know the ins and outs, whether they would have surrendered, whether they wouldn't have surrendered. It's not easy. Germany attacked Britain, uh, the, 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 the Battle of London, uh, with rockets. And what did Churchill do? He bombed cities in, in Germany, cities, and, and killed many civilians. And he did it quite deliberately, uh, saying that killing of civilians is necessary to bring the German people to their feet, to their knees, and to make them surrender. And so it, it was worth the firebombing of Dresden, which killed many thousands of people. You remember Kurt Vonnegut's book ab about that. It was worth it because it, it helped make German people less supportive of Hitler. These are complicated, difficult, complex decisions. And when we're involved in a horrible situation like the Russian-Ukrainian situation, we tend to simplify. And, and, and we're going to hear that tonight. Um, some of you will be watching the show after the State of the Union message has already been delivered, but some of you will watch it in uh, this show in real time before the State of the Union. I'm not going to predict what President Biden will do. I can tell you what he should do. He should be nonpartisan and he should try to unite everybody. He should try not to use this very important speech as a way of bolstering the Democratic Party or his own standing or brag about what he's done uh, to help the economy or to help COVID. He should only speak in a nonpartisan way. He should speak for a united America and he should speak to Putin and he should speak to the Ukrainian people and he should speak to the people of the world and he should be Churchill and Roosevelt um, and not, not just another politician making a State of the Union message um, um, 10 months before the midterm uh, elections. That's, that's not what he ought to be doing. I don't know what he will uh, be doing, um, but uh, he ought to be bringing us together and uniting us. But what he will do is he'll simplify. Of course, he'll do what every leader does. You know, what, uh, what Zelensky has done, and understandably, uh, turn the conflict into good versus evil. 
on one side, 0% on the other side. And maybe this conflict warrants that. But the point I'm trying to make in talking about Bobby Yar and talking about the misuses of history and talking about how at one point in time, only 70-something years ago, Russia were the heroes that liberated uh, Kiev from the nasty uh, Nazis. And of course, Putin is misusing history. He is describing Ukraine as Nazi. It's the first Nazi government in history ever to be headed by a Jew. But, uh, you know, when you're trying to simplify and you're trying to just make points, uh, that's the kind of historical simplification that you always engage in. So I know you'll be mad at me because many of you think this is not a time for nuance. This is not a time for calibrated fault-finding this is a time for standing together. And I've said that too. I've said that too. This is a time for standing together. And I hope what I've said helps us stand together with Ukraine and against Putin. But don't, don't rewrite history, even during a time of crisis. Don't rewrite history. Don't neglect memory. Don't distort what happened in the past. Don't make heroes out of villains like Melnitsky and like those who perpetrated Bobby R. Don't do that. And don't make comparisons between what may have been the worst moment in the history of the world, uh, the Second World War, the Holocaust, the murder of Romani people, the murder of so many people, 50 million people, um, so many people. Don't compare it to a, what's a very bad event and what could get much, much worse. But it's not going to turn into, we hope, uh, you know, there is the, the small risk. I think it's a small risk, but it's a risk that we could find ourselves in a confrontation that could lead to nuclear uh, attack on, on, on both sides. Maybe it would start with tactical nuclear weapons, but then it could devolve into uh, weapons of mass destruction. So let's hope and pray that we don't see that. We don't hear that. Um, I'm, I'm hoping I'll watch very carefully and listen very carefully to every word that uh, uh, President Biden says. Many of you didn't vote for him. Some of you don't even think he's a legitimate president, but he is the president. He's delivering the State of the Union message. And when it comes to what we're doing now, yes, nuance, yes, calibration, yes, let's not divide the world uh, into simple, simplistic uh, terms, but but. I think we should generally stand behind uh, the administration in, in its efforts to try to bring about, about peace. Okay, a couple of um, comments and questions that uh, I would like to address before we finish uh, today. Some of them came in just very, very recently. One of them very relevant, saying the Nazi statues don't endear me to Ukraine. Nobody's asking you to be endeared to uh, Ukraine. Remember, protest the Nazi statutes. I would hope maybe if Ukraine comes out of this thing with democracy intact and with the government intact, maybe they will think twice about the statues that still adorn Ukraine, glorifying uh, collaborators and glorifying uh, genocidal murderers who helped promote Ukrainian nationalism. So, so I'm hoping. Um, here's, you know, the, many of the, of the um, uh, letters to me are just plain ordinary attacks. 
Um, many of them call me a pedophile. They say I was on Jeffrey Epstein's pedophile island, so I must be a pedophile. Well, let me set the record straight. Uh, I went to Jeffrey Epstein's island with my wife and my daughter when he first bought it, and with Professor Michael Porter and his wife. We had dinner there for one night. There were no young people on the island. I was never again on the island. I've never had any kind of sexual contact with any young person in my whole life. So, you know, you can call me names. You can call me whatever you want. You can call me a Nazi. Calling me a Nazi is about as truthful as calling me a pedophile. So, so um, if you just want to throw names out, yeah, I'll read them. You know, I'll read them. I'll even read your name because it'll make you seem like a, a fool. Well, he didn't give his name. Bird's eye views. Um, but, um, uh, and then one person, you know, made a fairly serious uh, charge against me. He said, during an interview, this globalist freak, me, a globalist freak, said that it is perfectly legal for Americans to be forcibly dragged out of their homes and a needle shoved in your arm. No, I didn't quite, I didn't quite say that. What I said is that the Supreme Court in 1905 upheld mandatory vaccinations during a smallpox vaccine. I do not think that right now mandatory or compulsory vaccination would be justified uh, by, the, by the Supreme Court. We're getting more and more data and information as we speak. Um, just today heard that the Pfizer vaccine, the one that I took, is apparently not particularly effective uh, among young children, five to 10 or whatever uh, years old. We have to follow the data. Follow the information. Follow the science. Uh, as I've said before, if there were, God forbid, ever a situation where we had a vaccine which was 100% effective in stopping the spread of a 100% lethal uh, disease, uh, of course the Supreme Court would, would uphold it. And it would not uphold a compelled vaccination or medical treatment if the only person benefiting from it is the person getting the treatment. You want to die of cancer? That's your decision. You want to die of a heart attack? That's your decision. If there were a vaccine or a medicine that could cure you of that, you should take it. But if you don't take it, the state has no right to compel you to take it. Uh, I believe with uh, John Stuart Mill that the right to swing your fist ends at the tip of my nose. And um, uh, if your refusal to take a vaccine endangers the lives of lots and lots of innocent people and the science justifies that, that's one thing. If it just helps you um, stay alive, that's quite another thing. So the one thing about me and about this show is it's all about nuance. It's all about calibration. It's all about on the one hand and on the other hand. You know, um, Harry Truman once said to one of his assistants, the next lawyer I get, I want a lawyer who only has one arm. Why do you want a lawyer who only has one arm? I hate these lawyers, he said, who keep saying on the one hand and on the other hand. I want them to have one hand so they can tell me what to do. Well, I'm not the right lawyer for that. I have two hands. I have two minds about many things. And I'm always going to give you both sides of the story. That's the way I taught for 50 years. Students were frustrated because I didn't give them my opinions. I didn't give them the answers. I didn't tell them what was right and what was wrong. I made them work hard to come to their own conclusions. I never wanted to turn a liberal into a conservative or a conservative into a liberal. I never wanted to propagandize students toward my point of view. I just wanted to make them better lawyers, smarter people. If you're a conservative, I want you to be a smart conservative. If you're a liberal, I want you to be a smart liberal. And so I'm not going to tell you what to think on The Dirt Show. 
you're going to decide what you're going to think. I hope I'll help you think through some of these complex issues. But for me, it's going to be on the one hand. And on the other hand, if you want a one-handed lawyer, I can give you one, but I'm not the guy. So uh, send me your comments. Send me your comments um, on The Der Show. And listen to me on Locals. And uh, let's keep conversations going. Let's keep discussing things. We live in, I think there's an old Chinese expression, may you live in interesting times, a curse. We are cursed with living in interesting times. And uh, I'm going to try to make the best of it by making interesting issues even more interesting on The Der Show.